Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode and a new series of Talking France. It's the 11th series of the Local Francis podcast, which, if you are just joining for the first time, covers all the major news and talking points from France each week, as well as exploring some of the challenges around life in the country and explaining the cultural quirks and peculiarities of the French. If you enjoy the podcast, I have a favour to ask you. Please leave a review wherever you listen to it, or even better, spread the word and send the episode to anyone you know who might like it or even better than that the best thing you could do is become a member of the local which can be done easily via our website thanks to all of you who are already joined right let's get on with the matters in hand this week we will look at whether french farmers are set to reignite their protests and whether Lyon is the one city in france we should all move to and why president emmanuel macron is suddenly suggesting nato troops could be stationed in ukraine we'll also find out why the french taxman might be spying on your Facebook or Instagram accounts and here's some crucial tips for passing the French language test for citizenship. It's a jam-packed episode as usual. Joining me on stage this week will be the locals guitarist Emma Pearson, bassist Jen Mansfield and on drums we'll call on John Litchfield. I'm Ben McPartland on backing vocals. Emma, Jen and John, thanks for being here again. Hope you're all well. This episode is actually coming out on February the 29th. That's a leap year. It happens every four years. Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> Emma, does anything actually happen in France on leap years? Any strange traditions or superstitions? Um, yeah, we have a very special newspaper. It only on. comes out on February 29th. So it only comes out every four years. It's the world's least frequently produced newspaper. It's called La Bougie de Sapeur. It's the soldier's candle. And it's kind of like a, a satirical newspaper, jokes, cartoons, that kind of thing. But it'll be on the newsstands today. So look out for it. Oh, and what, once every four years? Comes One, out February 29th? Once every four years. Only newspaper, not on, not a website? No, so that no, no. Work really was, would it? If it was a not much to put there, yeah. just a uh, just a newspaper. I went on. They do have a website where you can subscribe, right. uh, and you can get a one hundred year subscription if you want Fantastic. one. If you're really optimistic about your lifespan, that's about what twenty episodes. Twenty like that, yeah. yeah that's just a hundred euro, so bargain. Yeah, that's all right, fair enough. Thanks, Emma. Okay, should we crack on with this week's episode? Now, every year around this time, a small part of Paris is transformed into a huge farm. The famous Salon de l'Agriculture, held at a huge exhibition centre in the southeast of the city brings together farmers, many of their animals and produce from all across France. It's a huge deal in the French political calendar. It's also a great day out. But this year, the recent nationwide farmer protest meant there was a lot of attention on the start of the show. And Jen, given what happened on the opening weekend, we can understand why. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the Senate is not just a moment for French farmers to show off their finest sheep, cows, pigs, cheese all other sorts of local gastronomy. It has political significance too. And this year, everyone, like you said, has been paying special attention because of the recent farmers' protests, which shut down roads and motorways across France in January. So these protests have been picking up again. On Friday, farmers and tractors ran a rolling blockade through central Paris. And when President Macron showed up at the farm show on opening day last weekend, 
Angry crowds heckled him and hundreds of protesters pushed through the gates and clashed with police. Six people actually ended up getting arrested and eight officers were apparently injured in the scuffle. Mm, yeah, there was a lot of argy-bargy. We thought these protests were done and dusted after the government made numerous concessions to appease the farming community. Why are they starting up again, Jen? Well, a big reason has to do with the fact that the farm show has been sort of a de facto deadline for French farmers to see their demands met by the French government. Last month, unions said that they would call off the large-scale protests if the government instituted reforms, and they were also promised a major national debate, but that ended up getting scrapped over a disagreement over who should be invited. So fast forward to the farm show, a lot of French farmers feel that the government hasn't held up their side of the bargain, hence the protests at the Salon de l'Agriculture. For Macron's side, he says that his government has made 62 commitments, uh, including a promise to institute minimum prices for agricultural commodities. And Prime Minister Gabriel Attal has also promised a new bill that would limit the power of large supermarket chains. That way, farmers and producers can get a fair payment for their raw materials and produce. But farmers still feel like this doesn't go far enough. Okay, it feels like an age ago now, but those protests held earlier this year, we saw farmers blocking motorways with hay bales and tractors and other main roads across the country. We also saw them attempt to block Rangis, is that right? Rangis with an S? Thank you. The huge wholesale market to the south of Paris. And they dumped a fair amount of manure and rotten fruit and veg in front of government buildings. Are we at risk of heading back to those kind of scenes, Jen? Well, it sort of depends. So Macron said that he would meet again with farmers in three weeks weeks after the fair ends on March 3rd. So there are ongoing EU meetings as well. Spanish farmers have continued to protest. They actually blocked a motorway in southern France on Tuesday. So we'll see how things shake out at the end of the farm show. Like this has sort of been their deadline, the farm show, uh, for action from the government. So it is possible that things could kick off again. You mentioned the Salon de l'Agriculture there. It's an important date in France's political calendar, even when there aren't farmers protesting, Jen. Yeah, so about 600,000 people attend every year. And during election campaigns, you can expect to see all the candidates walking around and chatting to farmers and petting cows. It's supposed to be this way to show that you're not just an elite, you're a man or a woman of the people. French media also keep track of how long presidents spend at the Senate. So, for example, François Hollande once spent 10 hours there. And Jacques Chirac, he's kind of the big name of the Salon de l'Agriculture, uh, he would spend around five hours every time he visited. And then Nicolas Sarkozy apparently never spent more than four hours there. Macron actually holds the title for the longest visit, though. He spent 14 hours there in 2018. Wow. And this year he spent 13 hours there. Wow. It's not just for politicians. Anyone can visit. I, there, I went there once, although I didn't spend 13 hours there. That would have been a nightmare. But um, you can go and admire the heifers and stroke the goats, perhaps, or the kids can go. It's a great place to take your youngsters, Jen. Yeah, and honestly, I really, really recommend it. The Salon is such a cool experience. It's kind of this combination of rural and urban French life meshing together. Uh, it takes place, like you said earlier, at the Porte de Versailles. So it's basically in Paris. And it honestly feels like a theme park because it's so huge. You can walk around and see all these animals, taste the cheese, taste the wine, talk to farmers, and generally just have a really nice time. Uh, it's kind of like a little slice of life from each of France's regions. And you get to test out each of their special regional gastronomies. And like we mentioned, the show, it runs until March 3rd. So in order to visit, you do have to get tickets. You can get them online. They're 16 euros for adults and nine for kids. Okay, let's end with just some analysis from John Litchfield, our politics expert who joins us on the line from up in Normandy. John, French farmers are clearly still angry. Can you see protests flaring up again? 
Or can the government and the, even the EU somehow calm their fury? It's very difficult, Ben, because the thing is that it's very difficult to say that there is one thing, such thing as farmers. You know, there are so many different sectors, so many different levels of income amongst farming groups in, in France that there are some, I think, that have been quite satisfied by the things the government has done in the last month or so. Others less satisfied or haven't yet seen the money or haven't yet seen the, the new regulations come through and therefore are suspicious and maybe right so because there's been cases in the past the promises being made which took a long, long time to be delivered. So I think this will drag on for a while. I think the government has done a lot. I think overall, strangely enough, I think the Macron in his period has done more for farming than previous French governments in many ways. And this is the beginning of a much longer series of agricultural campaigns and wars of this kind. And this will be solved for a while. You know, it tends to be in the winter when they're not so busy that farmers get out and protest on the streets when spring comes along. The draw of the fields is quite strong. And so it probably will fade away. But I think you're seeing the beginning of something much longer. Now, the French taxman is generally a feared fellow in France, not someone you really want to keep secrets from. But many people do, apparently, which is why he's been given some new powers, which might worry a few people, particularly social media users. Jen, tell us about these new powers. I'm intrigued. So this is all part of France's 2024 budget. There were a few lines giving French fiscal authorities more powers, including the ability to make fake accounts on social media. Basically, the goal is to allow tax agents to be able to use accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok to crack down on tax evaders. Previously, tax authorities did have the power to use online platforms, say, Scroll Airbnb or Le Bon Coin, without making an account just to check for illegal or undeclared rental listings. They could also use AI and Google Earth to check and see if people have undeclared swimming pools or extensions. But the change now is that they can actually use a pseudonym and create a fake social media account to look for tax fraud. And they can also interact with people online and chat with them. Mm. So basically, the French taxman can go undercover on social media. But why? What are they looking for here? Well, so they can't just create fake identities for fun. (laughs) Uh, It's meant to be a tool for detecting serious breaches. For example, this would include failing to declare or purposefully concealing an income earning activity or work, failing to declare a construction project like a swimming pool, uh, having assets related to illegal activity, or failing to declare certain accounts or contracts held abroad like trusts, which would normally lead to an increase in tax. Apparently, tax authorities are going to mainly focus on undeclared profit-making activities, so say renting an apartment without declaring it, for example. And then they'll also focus on previous discrepancies between what a taxpayer reports in their tax return versus their apparent personal situation online. And they'll also focus on people who who purposefully declare their tax domicile outside of France to avoid tax. Mm. So the um, Hungarian porn star I recently befriended on Facebook... (laughs) Are you suggesting that could be a French taxman, Jen? Has this gone into effect already? Is this happening? Well, no. So that person is not a taxman yet. <laughs> it hasn't gone into effect just That's yet. A uh, tax agents have to wait until the decree has been published in France's Journal Officiel prior to creating any fake social media accounts. And according to French media, at the latest, that could happen by the end of 2024, though it's likely it'll be sometime earlier. Okay, thanks for keeping us all on our guard there, Jen. We have a sponsor for this week's episode, the US tax specialist, Bright Tax. When you're an American living abroad, tax time can feel daunting. Changes to tax law back home and dealing with paperwork here in Europe make for a complex, time-consuming process. 
So it's good to know that Bright Tax is there to help take the pain out of filing your US taxes. Their team of professionals simplify the process and are always there to answer your questions. Best of all, Bright Tax can help implement smart tax strategies to maximize your chances of a return and avoid any unwelcome surprises. Head to brighttax.com slash the local to receive a $50 discount on your first project. Now, they call this city in France the Capitale des Gaules and also the Capitale Gastronomique. We know it as, Emma? Lyon. Lyon, it's a great place. Uh, and you reckon we should all move there, right? Well, it's not just me saying this, in fairness. Lyon this week came out top of a ranking of livability for French cities. It was basically judged the city that best conforms to the urban planning principles, which are known as the Vie de Quatre Heures, or the 15-minute city in English, which kind of assess how practical daily life is for dwellers in that city. And Lyon came out on top for a few reasons. It was judged to have the best integrated public transport system, so there was space for walking and cycling paths integrated with the city's metro trams, buses. Lyon has the second highest rate in the country of people walking to work. 17% of people walk to work and plenty of cyclists too. It's also got plenty of doctors. Lyon residents apparently have the shortest distance to travel in the country to find their nearest doctor, uh, which is obviously a bit of a contrast to many parts of rural France that are classed as medical deserts because of a a shortage of healthcare professionals. It's one of the greenest cities in France with 430 hectares of gardens, green squares and parks within the city. And it also scores well on some other environmentalist impacts such as air quality. And finally, there is the cost. Property in Lyon is half the price per square metre of that in Paris and consequently much lower rents. I mean, it's not as cheap to rent or buy property as in many parts of rural France or in small towns. But set against that, Lyon has good employment prospects with quite a wide variety of sectors hiring, including tech, academic work, media, retail, tourism. The city is also a leader in medical research and medical tech. So there's lots of sort of specialist jobs there. And it's also the location of the Interpol HQ, if you've got some kind of manhunting skills. Interpol is, is about crime, yeah? Police. International crime. It's right. the sort of, co- they coordinate mm. uh, police forces across Europe. All right. I mean, you've kind of sold it to me on terms of the practicalities of daily life there. Any other reasons you can think of for persuading us to move to Lyon, Emma? Yeah, there's loads. First of all, the city is within easy reach of the Alps. Uh, so you could take a day trip there if you like skiing, snowboarding, hiking, you can go skiing for cycling. A day, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can do all, oh yeah, skiing in the winter, obviously in the summer, hiking, cycling, mm. that thing where they run off the edge of a mountain screaming while attached on some kind of wing thing. Base jumping, I think. Uh, yes. Wingsuit uh, flying. Para- Parapont. Oh, uh, parapont. Okay. Parapont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, that thing. If if you like that kind of thing, Lyon is also well connected to both to France and to the rest of Europe. So it's on the the high speed TGV train network. It can be in Paris in two hours, an hour and a half to Marseille, and you can also quite easily travel by train to to Switzerland, to Italy, Germany, Belgium. And I mentioned already that it's a city with plenty of green space, but it's also quite a sporty city. Both its rugby and football teams play in the top division, but the real sporting star is Olympique Lyonnais women's football team. They are the most successful team ever in their division, and the Lyon play players tend to sort of form the backbone of the French national women's football team. And they've inspired a great network of grassroots teams for girls too. So if you have daughters who want to get involved in the beautiful game, then move to Lyon. All right. Now, I mentioned in the intro, we call it the gastronomic capital of France. Why is that? Why Lyon? I mean, food is the key thing for me. You might think that the whole of France is into gastronomy, but the French themselves consider Lyon to be the, the foodie capital. And it's for a few reasons. It's got a very impressive restaurant scene, which includes, but very much isn't limited, limited to the traditional restaurants that they call Bouchon, which uh, serve like quite uh, classic traditional Lyonnais cuisine. Uh, A lot of the Lyonnais specialties are quite meat heavy, delicious, but 
heavy and uh, not suitable for veggies, but there are also Lyonnaise potatoes, Lyonnaise salad, quinelle, which is kind of like a um, fish mousse in a fish broth, cardon, uh, globe artichokes are a speciality, and lots of cheeses, including a samassala, which is a really oozy, smelly one. Mm. It's great. But for me, the best thing about Lyon are the pink praline, little sweets, and also the, the pink praline brioche. So you get like the sweet bread and buried in the bread as these little sweets. It's very, very delicious. All right. Is there a downside at all? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you might have to do a bit more sport after eating all of the brioche. Right, okay. Just, just too much, too good. Jen, have you been to Leon? Jen's got a sweet in her mouth, everybody. <laughs> Is it a pink praline? <laughs> <laughs> Jen's removed the sweet. Jen, have you been to Leon? I have been to Lyon and I had a great one day trip there. Uh, it was actually quite doable because it's only two hours from Paris on the train. And we ate at a bouchon, which was delicious. And we biked, which you can do it. But just keep in mind that Lyon is very hilly. We were not expecting the hills and we were not in good enough shape for them. <laughs> but we had a great time. And there's a really beautiful view at the cathedral looking over the city and the river. And yeah, we had a good day. All right, you mentioned river. There's actually two rivers meet in Lyon at a place they call the Confluence. Do you know which two rivers they are? Uh, the Rhone. Yeah. And the... Oh, it starts with an S. Yeah. Sone. Sone, oh, I think Sone. I think it's pronounced Sone. S-A-O-N, I think. But it's a beautiful place where the rivers meet. You go across the Rhone and then you get to the uh, the other river, the Sone. It is fantastic. Definitely worth a visit. I'm not sure about moving there, but, you know, definitely worth a visit. Is that all right? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, a lot of people like it too. To live there, we have plenty of listeners there and they, they say it's great and they're really right. banging the drum for it. So right. We have a great article on our website actually featuring a lot of our readers who talk about the uh, the positives and the negatives of life in Leon. I'll share that article in the podcast notes. Thanks, Emma. Right, on to the major talking point in France this week, and indeed the major talking point around Europe. French President Emmanuel Macron smashed a major taboo by floating the possibility of sending troops to Ukraine, which would likely raise the stakes with nuclear-armed Russia. Emma, just explain the story here and what exactly Macron said that has caused such a stir in France and beyond. Um, yeah, so he was talking at the end of a summit that he hosted in Paris on Monday for European leaders to examine the way forward when it comes to the war in Ukraine. And European troops on the ground, let's be clear, is not something that is going to happen immediately or even in the medium term. What Macron actually said was there is no consensus on the idea of sending Western ground troops into Ukraine. But he added, nothing should be excluded. We will do whatever it takes to ensure that Russia cannot win this war. And the kind of the reason for this is he went on to say that we are convinced that the defeat of Russia is indispensable to security and stability in Europe. And he said that Russia was kind of showing a more aggressive attitude, not just to Ukraine, but in general. And I think at least part of the reason for Macron saying this or trying for this consensus among European leaders is worry about the ongoing reliability of US support for Ukraine, especially if Donald Trump wins the election in November. And he was actually asked about this, about the possibility of continuing to support Ukraine in the context of the US presidential elections. And what he said was, we cannot wait for the outcome of the American elections to decide what our future is going to be. It is the future of Europe that is at stake, so therefore it is up to Europeans to decide. If others want to join in and help, fantastic, but that is just an added bonus. And I mean, we should say that this isn't a new idea. Macron has been banging the drum for what he calls European strategic autonomy, that is Europe being responsible for its own defence and not relying on the US, since long before Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine. But I do think we also need to be clear that, as Macron himself said, there is very far from being agreement among European leaders, even on the current level of support for Ukraine, never mind the drastic step of sending in ground troops. So this is not something that will happen next week. And French sources are kind of briefing that this would, if in, even if it did happen, 
it will be more likely to involve maybe training missions or sending military instructors rather than having French troops directly fighting Russians in Ukraine. Yeah. Now, as you might expect, Macron's comments triggered quick reactions from other countries. Obviously, the Russians were not best pleased with the Kremlin warning that if troops were stationed in Ukraine, a conflict with NATO would become, quote, not just possible, but inevitable. And many other NATO countries distanced themselves from Macron, including key ally Germany, whose Chancellor Olaf Scholz stressed nothing will change, quote, there will be no soldiers on Ukrainian soil sent there by European states or NATO states. We'll bring in John shortly to get his views on why Macron has decided to break this taboo on posting troops in Ukraine. But we shouldn't forget, Emma, that when it comes to military matters in Europe, France does hold some sway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's partly, like I said, that, you know, this has been a subject that Macron himself has been interested in for some time. But I mean, when it comes more generally to military matters in Europe, France and the UK tend to take the lead because they have the most powerful armies and they are the two nuclear powers of Western Europe. So, I mean, Russia's military is the biggest in Europe by quite some way. But after that, France and the UK are generally counted as having the strongest military capabilities in Europe, although this isn't any kind of official ranking. It's just a view taken by various experts and think tanks. France has a standing military of around 260,000 people, and that's followed by the UK with about 185,000 permanent military members. I found a, a report from 2021 from the Rand Corporation, which is an American think tank that's kind of partly funded by the US government. And they concluded that the French military was among the most capable in Western Europe. Meanwhile, a guy called Jean-Jacques Roche, who is the director of the Institute of Weapons and Defence at the Université de Panthéon Assas, he said, France is the only European country that is capable of unilaterally engaging its forces overseas. And I mean, France and the UK, they do tend to work together quite a lot on military matters, even since Brexit, especially since what they call the Lancaster House Agreement of 2010 that kind of formalised a lot of their military cooperation. And I was at a party recently and I got chatting to this RAF bloke who is oh, yeah. uh, stationed, <laughs> yep, in uh, he's stationed in France. Um, and he was saying he's one of about 100 members of British military who are based permanently in France. And they basically, they just act as a liaison role. So on military bases all over France, there is one solitary Brit who's kind of there to make sure that everybody's cooperating and the day-to-day liaison. And I think the other reason that France is quite unusual is that it's actually, it was increasing its military spending even before the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, we've seen a lot of countries kind of scrabbling to increase their defence budget since then. But actually Macron has been increasing the defence budget since the beginning of his presidency, which is reversing decades of defence cuts in France. France spent 43.9 billion on defence in 2023. That's around 2% of its GDP. And French troops are deployed all over the world. Now, still now, Emma, whenever we talk about French military to kind of a certain maybe Anglophones, you always get jokes about running away and surrendering. You know, we've heard them before. Is that fair? <laughs> well, I mean, it is true that France has suffered military defeats in the past, but I mean, I think so has every nation, if you look closely enough. Probably the two most famous French defeats were Napoleon at Waterloo, so famous that it inspired a Eurovision winning song, as you know, and the fall of France in 1940. So I think you would be quite hard to argue that Napoleon wasn't aggressive enough. And obviously he had a lot of wins before that final defeat. So when you ask people to clarify this point about France always surrendering, it does tend to be the surrender to the Germans in 1940 that comes up a lot. And I mean, there's a lot of books and TV series about World War II if you're interested. I'm not really going to get into the minutiae of military strategy here. But what I think is interesting to look at is when we suddenly see a kind of uptick in rhetoric about French surrender. And that's actually in the 2000s, more than 50 years after the war ended. And it came in the 
context of the French president at the time, Jacques Chirac, refusing to join the US and UK-led coalition in invading Iraq. And it was around this time that we first hear the phrase cheese-eating surrender monkeys um, mm. to describe the French. You might remember that. Incidentally coined that phrase by one of the writers of The Simpsons. And that was also the period when French fries were briefly in a few canteens renamed Freedom Fries in the US. So I think the idea of the French always surrendering is perhaps more recent as an idea than we think. And I think it's probably fair to say it's based more on politics than on history. Thanks, Emma. I think it's time to bring back John Litchfield now. John, Macron's breaking of the taboo about sending troops to Ukraine has triggered a huge amount of reaction and a fair bit of discord. What was the French president up to here, John? Well, it seems to be a bit of a, a puzzle, that one. I think he surprised many people in France, even in his own administration, maybe, with what he said. It's very strange. I mean, this is a press conference quite late at night, and it wasn't something that was apparently on his agenda, things he wanted to say. He'd given what had happened at the summit that he'd called of donors, as it were, to, to Ukraine, and he didn't mention this, and it came up as a question near the end because there had been rumours uh, circulating that there was talk of maybe national troops going in alongside the Ukrainians in some capacity. And um, two things, he didn't refuse the question as he could have done. He said, there's not a consensus to do this, but it's something we do shouldn't be excluding. It's something we may have to consider. And what he didn't say, uh, which was interesting, was that we're only talking about sending in specialist troops to do things like mine clearance or looking after kit, which is probably happening a little bit, frankly, secretly already. He could have easily said that's all we're considering, which seems to be all that is being considered. We're not talking about French tanks, French planes, French ground troops going in, as far as I know, at all. It's not even, that isn't on the agenda. So he, he in a sense, made it more of an issue than he did. Why he did that, I don't know. I think he's partly, he feels, and maybe rightly, that Europe generally, France specifically, has not really grasped the seriousness of the situation, potentially this year, that we may be heading into, by the end of the year, into kind of, especially if Trump is to be re-elected in, in, in November, into a real crisis of what we do to prevent the Russians winning in Ukraine and what it would mean if they won and what, what they would do next. And so he wanted to sort of create this sense, sense of emergency. And he maybe also wanted to keep the Russians guessing as just to how far the Europeans are prepared to go to, to stop that from happening. But has that been successful? I think he might have considered it more carefully. He might have done it in a more orderly way than he's done it. But this is Macron, you know, he, he tends to think like a kind of historian or an academic sometimes rather than a politician. What he says is very interesting. doesn't always consider the, the implications of what he's going to say. If he's actually the leader of a big country, like France, it's different from if you're the leader of a think tank or, a, or you're a historian or analyst of military campaigns or possibilities. He's always drawn, I think, to the abstract in a way that can be quite dangerous. John, just bringing the events uh, kind of home, is there any support in France, you know, among the public for any kind of escalation of hostilities in Ukraine? What's interesting, there have been lots of polls recently <clears throat> on that subject generally. The French support for France and Europe supporting the Ukrainians against the Russians remains very strong after two years. It's about 65, 35 from the polls I've seen. It's maybe slightly softening, but not much. Support for French troops going in much, much less so. I think I saw a poll yesterday of being only about 25%, only one, one in four French people would be prepared to do that. So maybe that's what Macron was trying to do, just start the questions moving in people's minds, getting the idea out there so that uh, the arguments can be made. So, no, at this moment, I don't think there is in, in France or any other European country any strong feeling that it's time to actually get involved in the war with Russia. Obviously, fear of whatever that might mean for 
the Third World War with nuclear uh, armament in the background is very, very strong. Your column this week examined Marine Le Pen's stance towards Putin. She's obviously one of the front runners to win the next presidential election. Whose side would she be on, John, if she was elected? Well, you know, it's a question worth asking, quite frankly. I mean, her record of being very strongly Putin fangirl is 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 there. You know, it's out there in public, and and uh, she took money from him essentially in a loan a few years ago, which she's now repaid. She's described him as a sort of enormously important leader that sort of thinks the way she thinks, and she's had to back off that obviously since the invasion, which, as you remember, came in the middle of the last presidential election here. So if she's elected. Would she be uh, willing to go along with even what NATO and the EU are already doing to, to support, support Ukraine? It's, it's not a question easy to answer. I suspect not. I suspect she will be be a, a sort of a weak link, a Hungarian-style weak link. And you may also have a US weak link by then. So the situation would get very, very difficult indeed, which I think is part of the background of why Macron is worried about what's going to happen in the next two couple of years if the Russians continue to advance. I think the other question, though, is could all this damage her, you know, whether or not uh, when these things come close to the top of people's consciousness before the election in 2027, and if the conflict in Ukraine is still going on, whether the French people will be prepared to vote for a woman who, who clearly is much more attracted to being an ally of, of Putin's or was than to being allied to the uh, her European neighbours or to the Americans. So it may well be that it would work the other way around. Now, the issue of French language tests for citizenship and residency has been a huge subject for readers. We've got loads on our website, loads of articles explaining the new rules around these tests and tips. Jen and Emma, you're actually taking or you have taken these tests. And I think you've got some tips that you should share with our listeners. Who's going to start us off, Jen? Emma? I can start. (laughs) Before we get into it, I do want to clarify. So there are a couple of different language tests that you can use to prove your French knowledge for residency or citizenship. The DELF or DALF is probably the most common one. And that happens to be the test that Emma and I both took. Ultimately, every test is trying to determine basically the same things. So your reading, writing, listening and speaking skills, even though the formats might be a little bit different. So that's why our first piece of advice is to go online to the France Education Internationale website and to find the test that you are signing up for. From there, you're going to find a bunch of PDF copies of past papers, including the individual sections for each part of the exam. Um, You can also see a scoring guide, too. So that'll help you get an idea of how to formulate your answers. And the France Education Internationale website also has a link to the recommended practice books for each test, which is a really helpful place to start if you don't know what prep material to buy. And if you have time and you can afford it, taking a prep class in itself definitely won't hurt you. And honestly, it's really worth it if you are not feeling confident about being able to get the score that you want ahead of time. One really nice thing about taking a class is that you will get that speaking and listening practice in a classroom environment. So that will make you, you know, more prepared and it'll be more suited to kind of what you can expect during your exam. Mm, Okay. Any other tips, free tips that people can do to prepare for these tests? Yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of free ways to prepare too. You don't have to go pay for an expensive course. Um, I really recommend listening to as much French radio as you can. When I took my exam, the listening segments were all done in radio style, so it's good to have that background. And reading a bit of French news every day will help too, as a lot of the reading portions are simplified or just copied out portions of text from French news articles. Another really easy thing to do ahead of time is to just practice introducing yourself. So during the speaking portion of the exam, especially the higher level ones, you're likely 
likely going to have to start off by introducing yourself. So if you prepare a couple of paragraphs explaining who you are, whether it's your job, your hobbies, why you moved to France, whatever, this is going to help you a lot on the day of. And the test examiner, they're not really looking to hear that much about, you know, you and your life. They just want to know your French language skills and your level. So you can choose to share whatever you want. Now, Emma, apart from sending a French person to take the test for you, do you have any other tips for listeners? Well, that, that would be handy, yes. I would have done that if it was a choice. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of like, like Jen says, definitely doing your past papers. I think it really is worth taking a couple of classes if you're not sure. Yes, it can be expensive, but the exams themselves can be a couple of hundred quid. So it's whether you're saving money or not. When I sort of did mine, she just gave me like really good tips about like what examiners are looking for. So when I did a couple of practice essays, she told me that I'd structured them all wrong. And like in my head, I was outraged. I was thinking, I am a professional writer how dare you critique me mm. but that wasn't really what she was saying she was just saying you know the examiners like it like this and the other thing that is a bit weird is at the level of b2 which is the one i did the speaking section you don't introduce yourself you get given a scenario and then you have to make a presentation in character and you really need to remember the importance of introductions in french life so you do actually need to introduce yourself with your character name and your sort of scenario mm. so you have to start with the, you know bonjour je m'appelle camille i think they always say camille because it's a unisex name, but mm. you need to introduce yourself like that. So it's kind of like slightly strange amdram, but you just go mm, with okay. it. I reckon there's a lot of people like me who've been in France for quite a long time who are all right at French who think, or like I think, I can just wing it. Do you? Can you wing it or do you really have to prepare for these tests? Well, I mean, it depends on what your what your level is. I mean, I think the people who've learned sort of just through chatting to people, it's the written bit that is more likely to trip them up because mm. the, the grammar is there. But one thing is worth mentioning is that you have to get a minimum of at least five points in each section. But other than that, it's just a total score. So if you do quite badly in the written section, as long as your other sections are really strong, that can kind of pull you through. So Yeah, I, I sort of won it. I mean, I did some prep beforehand and I wish I had done a little bit more but I felt pretty confident about the score, like the, the test that I was taking. The one thing that I really think is important, though, even if you're like, oh, I know I'm going to pass, looking at the past papers gives you an opportunity to know the format ahead of time. Mm. And that's so important when you're taking a test, because honestly, a quarter of just passing the test is understanding the format and the way the questions are asked. Okay. Yeah, and sometimes the time is quite tight as well, so you kind of don't want to be wasting too much time sort of going through all the instructions and everything. If mm. you know how it is in advance, you're just giving yourself a bit more yeah. time to okay. do it. I need to prepare. So luckily there is lots of information on our website. We even have a homepage section on French language tests, do we not? We do. Brilliant. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in for this new episode, a new series of Talking France. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>